Hi everyone, you're listening to the August 2023 edition of Aeon's Retirement Market Update podcast. As usual, I'm your host, Ricky Marsh, and I'm going to start this episode with a little quiz question. What's the connection between films starring Adam Sandler and Joseph Gordon-Levitt, hit singles by Paul Simon and Lamar, a gift commonly given to mark 10 years of marriage, and Curtis James Jackson III? Answer coming up later on. Sarah Butlin and Shelley Fryer will be joining me in a bit to talk about trustee skills, but we need to get through this month's other news stories first, so here we go. Okay, so all of this month's news has basically dropped on us in a single 24-hour period, starting with the Chancellor's Mansion House speech on the 10th of July. Pensions was front and centre in the Chancellor's speech, and he laid out the direction of travel based on three golden rules. The first is that every action taken by the government will, and I'm going to quote, seek to secure the best possible outcomes for pension savers with any changes to investment structures putting their needs first and foremost. The second is that the government will always prioritise a strong and diversified gilt market. And the third is that decisions taken by the government must always strengthen the UK's competitive position as a leading financial centre. Following the speech, a bundle of consultations and calls for evidence was launched, and the outcomes of some other long-standing consultations were published. I'll dig into the detail on some of these next, but in general, most of the new consultations will run until the 5th of September, with final decisions expected ahead of the autumn statement. Like the Chancellor, I'll start with DC. One of the things that had already been reported before the speech was the Mansion House Compact, Nine of the UK's largest DC funds, making up around two-thirds of the UK's workplace DC market, have signed up to this, and it commits them to the objective of allocating at least 5% of their default funds to unlisted equities by 2030. This is part of a wider drive to encourage all schemes to invest more in private equity, and we'll see this coming up again later on. Next up for DC is a response to the recent consultation on a common value for money framework to apply across all workplace DC schemes. Schemes will have to disclose, assess and compare the value for money their scheme provides using a set of comparable metrics and standards. The new VFM framework will be introduced in phases with the main focus being on workplace default arrangements. Underperforming schemes could be required to wind up and consolidate into a better performing scheme. There will be further consultations to come on some of the details, and a lot of the proposals here will need new legislation, which the government plans to fit in when parliamentary time allows. The DC announcements continued with a new consultation on small deferred pension pots. This follows on from the call for evidence earlier this year, which considered two possible solutions, a default consolidator model or the pot follows member approach. Both solutions have their pros and cons, but the government's now concluded that the default consolidator model is the optimum approach, and the new consultation explores next steps. That includes a proposal that the maximum small pot size will initially be set at £1,000 with no minimum pot size. Last up on DC, it's another consultation following up from last summer's call for evidence on helping savers to understand their pension choices. The original call for evidence was looking to understand what support members of trust-based DC schemes need to help them make informed decisions about how to use their savings. This new consultation now sets out proposals that would require these schemes to offer a decumulation framework to support members when they actually take their pension. The DWP specifically encourages schemes to include a collective DC option as part of this framework, which brings us rather neatly onto our next item. 
So Collective DC, or CDC for short. Just as a reminder, the existing CDC regulations cover single and connected employer CDC schemes. And we had a consultation earlier this year that considered options for expanding this to cover multi-employer schemes, including industry-wide schemes and master trusts. The DWPs now responded to this consultation and said a further consultation will be coming in the autumn on draft regulations for these multi-employer CDC schemes. It also reaffirmed its commitment to creating provision for decumulation only CDC products, and that could help to broaden the at-retirement options available for members of traditional DC schemes, like I just mentioned. However, further work's needed on that, and no timescale has been set at this stage for that work. And now it's time to look at the DB announcements. The first one relates to DB consolidators or super funds. Super funds are currently subject to an interim regulatory regime based on guidance from the pensions regulator, and so far the only one to be authorised under that regime is Clara Pensions. Okay, you'll like this. So the DWP did actually consult on a permanent regulatory regime for super funds back in December 2018. Now, I've checked the archives. Yes, we have archives. And I think we covered that in the very first episode of this podcast. So it's somewhat fitting that we mark our 50th episode with the very long-awaited response to that consultation. To avoid introducing too much risk, the proposed super fund regime will be targeted at schemes that are over 70% funded on a buyout basis, but not yet able to afford a full buyout. This will also need new legislation, and again, we can expect that as soon as parliamentary time allows. What are the chances that we'll be reporting on that in episode 100? So the last one to cover here is a new call for evidence on the role of the Pension Protection Fund and the part DB schemes can play in productive investment. The focus here is on how DB schemes could use their assets more flexibly, while maintaining benefit security and not undermining the fiduciary duty of trustees. The government are looking to support increased investment in what it calls productive asset classes, and that includes startups, infrastructure and, yep, I said it had come up again, private equity, as well as illiquid assets. The call for evidence also looks at the potential for the PPF to act as a consolidator. The PPF did welcome this, although they stressed that their focus remains on delivering on their existing role for their current members and levy payers. As I said earlier, most of the new consultations announced in the Chancellor's speech are running until the 5th of September. Now, I'm aware that this has been a very high-level summary of the Mansion House reforms, but if you're interested in a deeper dive, I'd thoroughly recommend checking out a replay of our webinar on the topic. I'll include a link to that in the show notes. And if you'd like more information on this or any of this month's other news stories, I'll include contact details at the end. Right, so I've covered most of the Mansion House announcements and consultations, but the one I haven't really mentioned is the call for evidence on trustee skills. And that's because I've been saving it to discuss with today's guests, Sarah Butlin and Shelley Fryer. So Sarah and Shelley, before we get started, do you just want to do some quick intros? Yeah, sure. Hi, I'm Sarah. I'm part of Aeon's governance specialist team, and I've been working with trustee boards and companies to improve broad pension scheme governance and trustee effectiveness. And I'm Shelley, and I spend most of my time as a client-facing investment consultant, but also have a role thinking about our approach to strategic advice. So spend a fair amount of time looking at how that might be impacted by things like funding regulations and government policy. Great. So the call for evidence goes into a fair bit of detail on investment skills, and we'll come on to those later on. But it also raises the need to improve trustee skills and capability more generally. 
Um, Sarah, just starting with you, what kind of things should schemes be doing in this area? Yes, you're right, Ricky. Um, it does go way beyond investment skills and it includes the role of the professional trustees in running um, trustee boards. Um, it raises again the possibility of accreditation of trustees and also the real or perceived reticence in attracting future trustees to boards. But actually, I'd say that there's been a real focus on board governance and trustee effectiveness for the past five years or so. Lots of trustees have spent a lot of time doing things like considering their composition, um, how they can become more effective and understand the resources that they need to deliver their objectives. And then ultimately, if they haven't got the, that expertise on the board, where they can access it from. Um, and then generally providing some broad-based training to trustees as well. And I do agree that a skilled and capable board is essential to making effective decisions. And in my view, most trustee boards have moved on from the traditional trustee knowledge and understanding um, to consider broader transferable skills that individuals can bring to the board from their day jobs, their interests and their general life experiences. And that's also been supported further by the diversity, equity and inclusion agenda and the guidance released earlier this year from the pensions regulator around what diversity means on trustee boards and the value in looking for diversity in skills, experience, background and the perspective that different trustees can bring. So we have to put this all into context, right, because Today, there are multiple competing priorities for trustees, and even compared to a few years ago, the asks of trustee boards has increased significantly. For example, the developing cyber agenda, the multiple pension options available to members, and the risks of pension scams. All of these things just piling more onto trustee boards who now need to be far more skilled than ever before to keep up with those developments. So if I link those themes together, I guess the desire to achieve a diverse range of skills on the board then naturally leads on to succession planning conversations with the scheme sponsor for employer nominated trustees um, to better targeted recruitment of member nominated trustees and boards looking at where they can access some of the missing expertise and skills from um, from the other support resources that they have available to them. So the, the call for evidence specifically questions the quality of decision making on boards and it raises the issue of trustees maybe not challenging their advisors enough. It says about a quarter of trustees say they never challenge their advisors at all. Shelley, as someone who spends a lot of time advising trustees, does that really line up with your experiences? I mean, firstly, it's difficult to understand what those headline figures really mean. Um, if I think about the type of advice that I'm giving trustees, Quite a lot of it you wouldn't expect to be challenged that much. You know, we'll have agreed what the trustees' views are, what their objectives are. We've probably got several policies in place. And I'm giving advice in line with that. So if we think of some of the more simple things, like where's your cash flow coming this month to pay your benefits? If I come along and say, well, we've got enough cash in the cash fund, so I think we should disinvest it from there, I wouldn't expect us to need to have a massive debate about that. Um, and so, I mean, looking at the data that they've 
given they're saying the majority of trustees seem to be saying that they rarely uh, challenge the advice from their advisor. And I I think what would be interesting to understand is, is it those kind of decisions that they're saying that they don't challenge, but it's the big ones that they do? Or is that all sorts of uh, decisions? And then if I, I think about those big strategic decisions, I think there the question then becomes, well, what does challenge really mean? And um, I don't tend to get to the point where we're doing a strategy review, rock up at a trustee meeting one day and say, right, it's strategy review time. I've thought about this. Here's your answer. Do you want to implement this portfolio? You know, it's a much longer process. So we'll start that by discussing their views, understanding their constraints, talking about objectives, talking about what the sponsor thinks and what the sponsor wants to do. And then I'll start talking about the range of options and we'll be looking at at their views and the pros and cons of those different things. And then we eventually kind of end up at the recommendation point. And depending on the type of trustee board and the type of decision, I might give a single recommendation at that point, or even then I might give a range of options and they choose which one they want. So if I think about how often my advice gets challenged, uh, it is quite rare that I give a single recommendation and the trustees disagree with me, but it does happen. Um, But I think even without that, though it hasn't been given as a challenge, that doesn't mean that trustees' views haven't been represented in the advice that I've given them. Um, And so I I think you can't take just from those headline figures about the amount of challenge there is that it's just the advisors pushing their own opinions onto a trustee board. Yeah, and I think I actually agree with most of that on the actuarial side as well, to be fair. So the call for evidence also suggests that boards with professional trustees on them would make better decisions and maybe challenge their advisors more. Sarah, would you really agree with that assessment? So thing is, I guess I start from the premise that a trustee is not expected to be an expert and it's the collective knowledge and skills on the board that makes them successful. So in my experience, professional trustees do tend to add great value when they're on a board, but that doesn't mean to say that a board can't make effective decisions without them in all situations. And because equally, employer and member trustees bring insight into the scheme sponsor and have a better understanding of their members. So for me, it's about making sure that boards have the right balance and the advice and support that they need to make the right decisions. And it is fair to say that without professional trustees, some boards can feel that they aren't able to challenge their expert advisors. So a few years ago, Aon published a document that was made freely available to all pension schemes, and it's called 10 Questions to Challenge Advisors. And this was our attempt to provide lay trustees with a narrative to challenge technical advice. For example, one of the challenges in the document is, in 12 months time, everything's gone wrong. What are the possible causes? Thinking of challenges in this way helps trustees to make informed decisions by understanding potential future issues at the point of the actual decision making. And the advisors themselves have a role here as well in discussing their advice and helping the trustees understand what led to the recommendation and what else was considered. So I guess in my opinion, the need for professional trustees differs depending on the board in question. However, if I do pick up the piece of 
around achieving good outcomes, this does come back to good decision making. Focusing on investment decisions in particular, in 2019, we did some research with Behave London and Leeds University um, to research behavioural biases in trustee decision making. And as a result, we created a checklist to help with investment decision making specifically. When I talk to trustee boards about effectiveness, with my clients particularly, we do look at practical examples and we use the checklist to demonstrate the impact on their decision making. This checklist is actually freely available on our website along with the other materials which also support trustee boards. So in summary, I think that boards can make good decisions without a professional trustee, but depending on the makeup of the board, it can be very beneficial to add a professional trustee into the mix. Yeah, and the, the government seemed keen to actually go further than that. And there are questions in the call for evidence about having a professional trustee on every board. Do you think that's where we'll end up? So it's an interesting conundrum, I think. There's been a drive to professionalise trustee boards for a few years now. And in my experience, more trustee boards have a professional trustee now than probably five years ago. Um, Aon recently carried out a survey of 150 plus of its trustee board clients with schemes ranging in size from less than 100 million to multi-billion pounds. And the real results of it were that approximately 57% of them had a professional trustee on their board. But what did surprise me from this survey was that the size of the scheme wasn't indicative of the likelihood of having one. What I mean by that is that the smaller schemes were just as likely to have a professional trustee as the multi-billion pound ones. And for me, that was quite important because the idea that the larger schemes are able to obtain better support than smaller schemes with smaller budgets does worry me. What I would also say is that professional trustee is typically appointed by the scheme sponsor. And at that time, there's generally a specific objective in mind when they make the appointment. And typically that might be to add expertise in a specific area. And ultimately, I think, you know, there's a trade-off of additional cost against having deeper expertise on the board. And particularly where the employer-nominated trustees are challenged to find the time to fulfil all of the demands of the role of the trustee, that's where I think professional trustees can help to fill that gap. And then I guess the, the other point that we need to talk about is the capacity, um, which is called out in the consultation. Um, Today, there just simply aren't enough professional trustees to appoint one to every trustee board in the UK. So this leads me to think that upskilling trustee boards by focusing on skills, diversity of perspective, and not just traditional trustee knowledge and understanding, um, and being able to access expertise from advisors and other scheme resources is an obvious fix for trustee boards, at least in the short term. Thanks. So Shelley, just shifting the spotlight away from trustees for a minute, the call for evidence is also looking at the role of advisors, particularly investment consultants. Why do you think that is? Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, it does seem, looking at the call for evidence, the questions in particular are focusing on the link between investment advice given to trustees and their low investment in private equities. Um, reading what they've put in the background in the call for evidence, 
they seem to be concerned about, and I'm going to quote, a deficiency of knowledge or expertise by investment consultants when it comes to private equity. And that seems to have come from some research that was done that said a lot of investment consultants come from an actuarial background. And so they don't have that direct exposure to private equity trading. Uh, and when I looked at that, I thought, well, I am an investment consultant who comes from an actuarial background. So I can't really dispute that that is a career path that a lot of us take. Uh, but I think it, it misses the point that the advice that we give isn't about our individual experience. I mean, no one person has experience of the wide range of aspects that we need to advise trustees on. And so we're drawing from expertise uh, you know, throughout the wider firm. If I come to a trustee meeting and I'm talking about asset allocation advice, that view isn't based on what I read in the newspapers that morning. It's based on the view of our team of asset allocation specialists who I've spoken to. And likewise, if I'm going to talk about private equity, I have used uh, views and information from the 15 private equity specialists that we have in our global manager research team. Um, so I think they do need to be taking that into account uh, when they think about it. I mean, I know I can only speak from an, an Aon perspective, and I know potentially because we're global, we maybe have more focus on that because we have a global uh, base of clients. UK schemes generally haven't been investing that much in private equity recently. That's not necessarily true across the board. And so it's still quite a, an active area for us. And sticking with private equity there, another thing the government's focusing on is whether trustees' view of the fiduciary duty is actually stopping them from investing more in that particular asset class. Do you think that's a factor? I, th I think it certainly is one of the factors. Uh, I mean, we did a webinar not very long ago uh, looking at the mansion house reforms in more detail. And we talked about some of the reasons that private equity isn't a major part of a lot of schemes portfolios. And they're fairly wide ranging. I mean, it can be an attractive asset class, but it's high risk. It offers low liquidity. Um, it comes with high charges and higher complexity and oversight requirements that can hinder transparency. And it's, there's also uh, not that many suitable funds for DC investments. So it needs careful consideration. And there are a wide range of reasons why schemes might not be holding it. But I think if we look at fiduciary duty in particular, that's certainly a factor. I think there's a wider debate about the amount to which that needs to change. Uh, so if I split them out, because it's quite different for DB and DC, I think for DB schemes, a trustee's primary responsibility is to ensure there's enough money for the scheme to, be, to pay the benefits that are due. Uh, and a lot of trustees do that by targeting a buyout, which requires liquidity, or targeting being fully funded on a low risk basis where they can invest in a way that the chance of becoming underfunded in the future is very low, uh, which means a preference for fairly low risk assets. So those sort of end game long term target portfolios are unlikely to include private equity due to the risk and liquidity that's in it. But also because of the long term nature of a private equity investment, probably portfolios that think they're 10 years away from being in that end game state are also not going to be making new investments because they're not going to want to hold it for that long. For DB schemes that still need some return, though, and have a much longer time scale, 
I don't think it's the fiduciary duty that's holding them back from holding that kind of asset class. What probably is worth noting, though, is that when I'm talking about private equity there, I mean it as the global asset class. So an investment in private equity doesn't necessarily mean an investment in UK unlisted equities, which does seem to be what the government's talking about. Um, if we then move and look at DC schemes, there a trustee's main responsibility is to support members in achieving adequate retirement living standards. Um, but that, again, does have an impact on how willing trustees are to invest in growth assets and in particular illiquid and complex assets. Um, trustees generally are quite risk averse when it comes to members outcomes because they recognise that significant losses can be very distressing for members. Um, and they're also concerned that there might be a, a loss of trust in the pension scheme if a member sees a big loss in their fund and they don't fully understand where that's come from. I think trustees will also be concerned about the potential for these funds to suddenly close or have illiquidity issues, which might be unexpected. And for a DC pot, that can mean that a member can't transfer their pot if they want to, or potentially they can't even retire and start taking their pension at the point that they want. So it is a factor that, that trustees have to consider. So Sarah, I don't know if you have any views from the governance perspective. So I guess the thing I would say is that fiduciary duty is pretty much the first thing that a new trustee learns about during their induction and their initial trustee training. And then when the trustee board is in decision making mode, the scheme lawyer will typically remind them of their fiduciary duty. So whilst it is complicated, it isn't a once and done. It's revisited on a pretty regular basis in my experience. And that's another example of the value to trustee boards of the advisor being in the room. And that, I think, is actually quite a good place to leave it for today. Um, I'll make sure I include links to the materials that Sarah talked about earlier and also to a recording of the webinar Shelley mentioned in the show notes. And all that's left is me to say thanks very much to both of you for joining us on our special 50th episode. Now, back to that quiz question. Okay, so the movies were 50 First Dates and 50-50. The songs, 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover and 50-50, again. The anniversary gift was Tin, which has the atomic number 50. And Curtis Jackson is better known as 50 Cent. So the connection was the number 50, and that brings us to the end of our 50th episode. It probably also sets a world record for the number of times anyone said 50 in 30 seconds. Thanks again to my guests, Shelley Fryer and Sarah Butlin, and thanks to you for listening, particularly if you've been with us for all 50 episodes. I'll be back soon for episode 51, and if you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget you can subscribe to the series through all the usual places, including the Apple Podcasts app and Spotify. If you'd like more information on Aeon's Wealth Solutions, or you want to feature in a future podcast, you can contact me on ricky.marsh at aeon.com, otherwise please visit our website or email talktous at aeon.com.